Just to recap quickly, those two churches that you were looking at, Ephesus and Smyrna, very different, aren't they? You know, the situations which they face. Ephesus, hardworking, intolerant of false teaching. They hate the Nicolaitans. We're not sure who the Nicolaitans were, but they're persistent because they crop up in one of the other letters letters too. Uh, But uh, it's not enough to just love what Jesus loves. We have to hate what he hates too, which is interesting, isn't it? But they have done that. They persevered under trial, but they've forsaken their first love, which could mean their love for each other. More likely, I think, it's to do with their love for Christ. They seem more concerned for truth than love. And uh, Jesus warns them, doesn't he, that they must repent or he will remove their lampstand. He will snuff the lamp out. And that could never happen to us, could it? You know, we could never forsake our first love. Get so caught up with spotting wrong doctrine that we, um, and we become pharisaical. That couldn't happen in our church, could it? Yeah. <laughs> no, somebody was saying, that's good, that's good. Well, it could happen, so beware <laughs> and watch and be ever watchful. Smyrna, on the other hand, well, the Lord Jesus has nothing to say that's bad about them. But I would have imagined they wouldn't have figured in your top ten list of churches to visit if you were visiting Ch- Turkey. You know, I must go and visit that church. I, must go. I don't imagine Smyrna would have, list, would have um, figured in the top ten. For a start, they were poor. They weren't rich. They weren't powerful. They'd faced terrible persecution from the local synagogue. And Jesus says, actually, you're going to face more. It's going to get worse. You thought things were bad, and things are going to get even worse. But Jesus says, doesn't he, the way I see it, you're rich. You may think you're poor, but actually you're rich. So again, how we need heaven's perspective on things. You know, the world looks, it looks like one thing, doesn't it? But from Jesus' perspective, things look very different. And he says, the way I see it, the synagogue is actually in the hands, which is giving you trouble, is actually in the hands of Satan. There's an almighty spiritual battle going on, which you can't see with your physical eyes. So keep being faithful, even if you have to die, and I'll give you the crown of life. Two very different settings, but Jesus speaks to both. Now what's going to keep a church like Ephesus and a church like Smyrna facing the hardship and not caving in? And the Lord Jesus' answer is to show us things on heaven, but from, on earth rather, but from heaven's perspective. And he gives us in this second section visions. So do you see in chapters 4 and 5 there and chapters 11 verse 9 to 15 verse 4, you get two sets of visions in this section. So it begins with a vision of heaven's control room. It ends with a vision of signs in heaven. We're lifted up to heaven to see these two visions. And then in between we get two cycles of sevens. We've had the first cycle of seven, the seven uh, churches. Now we get the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And they announce God's actions to save and to judge on the earth. So that's where we're going in this um, second talk. Okay, Let's have a look at Revelation 4. If you've got the Bible there, let's delve into Revelation 4. And John writes, after this, I looked, 
And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. John is invited up to see what must soon take place. And it's as though he gets a a sort of privileged peek at the control room of the whole universe. He comes to the heart of absolutely everything. And what does he see? Verse 2. And the voice I heard first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, I will show you what must soon take place after this. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now just glance down the page of your Bibles of chapter 4 for that word throne. In verse 3 we're told a rainbow encircles it. In verse 4 we're told 24 elders surround it. In verse 5 lightning flashes and thunder rumbles from the throne. In verse 5 again seven lamps are ablaze before the throne. Verse 6 Before the throne is a sea of glass. Verse 7, around the throne are four living creatures. Verse 9, the living creatures give thanks for the one on the throne. They sing. And verse 10, the 24 elders lay their crowns, their own crowns, before this throne. Now, we could spend our time working out in chapter 4 the significance of the rainbow and the thunder and the lightning and the four living creatures and the sea of glass and the 24 elders, and all of that would be profitable. But actually, it would be a bit like not seeing the wood for the trees. Because none of those little things actually dominate. What dominates, what is central in chapter 4, is the throne. The throne. The throne. Before it, behind it, around it, under it, over it. We're drawn to the throne again and again and again. It's the throne. You can't get away from it. What does it mean? Well, look at what the 24 elders sing in verse 11. In Revelation, it's often in the songs that you get the explanation for the vision. So you you get the detail and you think, what on earth is this talking about? And then you get a song, and the song explains it all. It gives you the key. Very helpful. We get a song in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things And by your will they were created and had their being. In other words, this one and this one alone is worthy to be honored and praised. Why? Because he made it all. You created all things. And he's the source of it all. By your will they were were created and have their being. And as these 24 elders who themselves have crowns, symbols of authority, cast their crowns before this one, they are surrendering to him any powers which they might exercise. This is the one who truly reigns over everything. All power belongs to him. Now you think how the Christians in Smyrna, who've been told that actually they're going to have to be faithful to God unto death, would have felt reading this chapter or hearing it read to them. Now this world, according to the Bible, is not in the control of the devil. It's not in the control of secular governments or Islamic powers. This God is on the throne. And John invites us to join heaven in defiance of every human power and every demonic dictator in saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Not anyone else, but you. 
And one day every eye will see that. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that's chapter 4. But in chapter 5, John is still in the throne room. And again, let's look at what John saw. This is part 2. Sorry, my notes are actually wrong. I put part 1 under the scroll of destiny. Actually, that's part 2. What John saw in chapter 4 is part 1, if you want to correct the notes. This is part 2. Because, again, things begin to happen in chapter 5. He sees now, chapter 5, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So this is one big document. Normally, you'd, you'd only write on the smooth side of a papyrus scroll, not on the rough side. But there's so much written on this scroll, it has writing on both sides. And it's sealed up with seven seals. So this is the next seven. If you were very important and powerful, that's what you did in the ancient world. You sealed your documents with several seals. In fact, the Roman Emperor Vespasian uh, left his last will and testament. And it was sealed with seven seals. And not until those seals were broken could any of his wishes, his last will and testament, come to be. Could they be carried out? And there's something like that happening here. Here is a scroll full of God's purposes to save his people. Full of God's purposes to bring in his kingdom. It's all there. There's no detail missing. It's one big scroll, but none of it can happen. Because as this mighty angel in verse 2 cries out through the whole of the universe, and it's a heart-rending cry, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is good enough? Who is pure enough? Who is able to approach this God, the God who we've seen in chapter 4, who's surrounded by magnificent creatures, who dare not get close to him because he's too powerful, he's too holy, he's too pure. They've already cried out, haven't they? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come, which is reminiscent of the song, do you remember, that is sung in Isaiah chapter 6 as Isaiah goes into the temple? And we're told that the train of God's robe, the sort of trailing afterglow of God's glory, that was enough to fill the temple, Solomon's magnificent temple. And the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we're told at the sound of their voices, the temple shook. So this wasn't, you know, our pleasant, holy, holy, holy. You know, early in the morning, that's about all we can cope with on a Sunday morning, early in the morning, isn't it? But this was, holy, holy, holy. Did that wake you up? It was even louder than that because it shook the temple. This was a terrifying experience. As Isaiah came into something of the presence of God and the temple was filled with his glory and the angels are crying out. And he thinks he's done for, doesn't he? Woe to me. He says, I'm ruined. I'm undone. Something of that is in chapter 4, Revelation 4. It's the same God. The creatures are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And in chapter 5, with this scroll that the one who sits on the throne holds in his right hand, the angel is crying, who is worthy to approach the throne, to break the seals and to open the scroll? And the drama, you can't get away from it. Verse 3, 
there's a search of heaven and of earth and no one in heaven no angelic being nor on the earth no human being or under the earth that is no dead being was found who was worthy to open the scroll and John begins to weep verse 4 I wept and wept because no one in heaven or on earth was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John longs, doesn't he, for this world to be sorted out. He's suffering, isn't he? As as someone who's witnessed to Jesus, he's suffering himself. He's writing to seven churches. They're suffering for witnessing to Jesus. He longs for evil to be judged. He longs for sin to end. He longs for death to be no more. He longs for God to set up, come and set up his kingdom. But none of that can happen until someone is found who's worthy to open the seals and to bring about God's plans. But wait. John hears something. What does he hear? Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, each of those phrases that the angel uses come from the Old Testament. Genesis 49, verses 8 to 11. As Jacob, the great patriarch, is about to die, he blesses each of his sons. And the biggest surprise in that blessing is that he says little Judah is going to become like a lion's cub and he says the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler or the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. That's an intriguing verse tucked away there in Genesis. And now the elder uses the title of this one for the person who has overcome. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He takes that little phrase tucked away in Genesis 49. And he says, this one has come who can open the scroll. He uses another title. He calls him the root of David, a phrase that Isaiah uses when he sees all the kings of Israel are going to be cut right down to size. Now there they are, these tall trees. And the kings have been an absolute waste of time. They've been absolute scumbags. It's a technical theological term, you know. (laughs) All a waste of space. So what's going to happen... It's as though the axe is going to be laid to the root of the tree and the whole thing is going to come tumbling down. And it looks as though this is the end of the royal household. The line of kings, as though that's it. No more kings. And then Isaiah says, as he looks at that stump, he just sees a little shoot coming out. And he says, from the stump of Jesse, in other words, from the royal line of David, a shoot will come, chapter 11, verse 1. And the angel says, Don't weep, John. Don't weep, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Do you know, you can't help remembering the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. 
where he said to David, David says, you know, I'm going to come and build you a house, God. You know, so we settled, we've moved into Jerusalem now. You know, you've got that tell tent. I've got a special house. So, you know, you ought to have a special house. And you're doing God a favor. And God says, no, no, don't worry, because I'm going to build you a house. Not a physical house, but a household, a family. And I'm going to establish your line, and there will always be a king who will sit on your throne. There will, will be a king who will reign forever. And here the angel says, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, this king, this, this promised one in the Old Testament, he is the one who has come and who has triumphed. And so John turns to look for this lion, this magnificent lion. And what does he see in verse 6? Then I saw... What does he see? Then I saw a... Hello? Lamb. A lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. Standing in the center of the throne. So this comes from God. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. What's this? A slaughtered lamb? How can the lion who triumphs be a slaughtered lamb? And it's as if, and Revelation does this so well in its pictorial form. It's as if we're being shown from heaven's point of view, the cross of Jesus is the decisive turning point of history. It's a victory. A victory? You'd stood at the cross on Good Friday and you'd seen the world at Jesus' feet mocking him, laughing at him, throwing everything at him, scorning him. You'd seen the sky go black and you'd seen Jesus hung there, hanging there, deserted by all his friends. There's no way that you would ever have concluded that that was a victory. And yet from heaven's perspective, as Jesus hung there, abandoned by his friends, even with God forsaking him, as the sins of the world are placed on this sacrificial lamb, he bears your sin and mine, and he deals a blow from which Satan will never recover because Satan can no longer accuse you. Satan, that's what the word Satan means, the accuser. What's his power? Satan doesn't really have any power, does he? The only power he has is the, is the power of a, accusing us. He's the prosecuting counsel who comes and says to the court, before God, this person, your honor, has sinned. And this person does not deserve to go to heaven. This person does not to be in your, deserve to be in your kingdom. He deserves hell. He deserves to come with me. And our only defense against that is if one has died in our place already, who has paid the penalty. And that's what Jesus does as he dies on the cross for us. He takes our place. He takes our sin out of great love for us. He becomes our substitute. He becomes the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who's led to the slaughter. And it's as he lays down his life that we find life. It's as he gives himself in death that he triumphs over the powers of sin and death and hell. It didn't look much like a victory. But as Jesus hung there in agony, he was dealing a final blow to Satan who would never recover. And from that moment, all of God's purpose is to rescue people, to live with him forever in a perfect universe 
can now begin to happen. The cross is the turning point. And Jesus is therefore praised by the creatures of heaven, verse 9. By the multitudes of angels, verse 12. And verse 23, by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. And now because of his victory, he is worthy. So they sing, verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you see how the song explains it? You purchased men from for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now God's purposes for this world can be fulfilled because there is one who, who is worthy by virtue of his sacrificial death to open the scroll of destiny. And so in chapters 6 to 8, Jesus begins to break the seven seals of the scroll of destiny. In chapter 6, verses 1 to, 1 to 8, seals 1 to 4 are broken, and four horsemen ride out on the earth. They're all referred to in the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, chapter 6. And they seem to represent conflict, war, plague, and then death. Now, some read Revelation, and they think John is writing of a certain period in history. I don't think that's how we're meant to see it. John's four horsemen are very much in evidence today, perhaps more so than in John's day. Conflict, war, plague, death. Does that mean that we're close to the end of the world? Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 24 when he talks about the signs of the end? And he says, like Revelation 6 here, there will be wars and famines and earthquakes. And when the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you. That's interesting, isn't it? In other words, he's saying in this area of interpreting the signs of the end, people will be very prone to jump to false conclusions and to be being led astray. So that ought to warn us. And then he goes on and he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed, says Jesus. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. It's not the end. The end is still to come. And then he goes on. You can imagine the disciples are sort of there you know, with their notepad and paper. Okay, this is the, this is the end. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. Okay, right. And then the end? No. All these are the beginnings of the birth pains. So the temptation will be when we see these signs of the end to think, ah, this is it. Christ is coming. And that's happened again and again and again throughout history. And Christians have overreacted. They haven't heard Jesus saying, these are the beginnings of the birth pains. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. To put it in terms of Revelation 6, we've seen the four horsemen riding out and we thought, this is it. Sit back, because Jesus is just about to come now. But when did we see the Lamb break the seals? When was it that the Lamb broke the seals? Chapter 5 tells us it was when the slain Lamb took his place on the throne. In other words, when Jesus left this earth, having died, risen from death, and ascended into heaven, that's when the seals began to be broken and the riders began to ride out 
and they will continue until, verse 17 of chapter 6, the great day of God's wrath has come. The wrath of God and of his Lamb has come. And who can stand? So these kinds of trouble will mark the whole period from Christ's ascension to his return. Now in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 6, the fifth seal is broken and we see souls beneath the altar, the martyred saints, crying out, How long, O Lord? And so along with the four riders of conflict and war and plague and death comes the fifth, which is persecution of God's people. And God's people are crying out, Lord, how long? And they're told, notice verse 11, to wait a little longer. In other words, persevere. Hold on. Then comes the sixth seal in verses 12 of chapter 6 through to chapter 7 and verse 17. This is wrath, God's wrath, and his vindication, the vindication of God's people. Here is the final judgment. And with this seal, John has moved beyond mere signs of the end to the start of the very end itself. Because we read in verse 17, with the breaking of this seal, the great day of God's wrath has come. And kings, princes, generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man, verse 15, run and hide and cry out to the rocks to fall on them. Because God is coming to judge the world. It's a terrifying picture. And then suddenly, the scene changes. Because in chapter 7, we get the seventh and final seal. And John whisks us away. And we get four angels of God's wrath, which is another way of referring to the four horsemen. So this is a different way of looking at things now. But it's saying the same thing. They are about to descend upon the earth. But these are held back for a while. Why? Because God has his people who must first be sealed. They're told, verse 2, I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So God's people are sealed. Who are they, verse 4? I heard the number of those who were sealed. These are the ones who are mine, in other words, God is saying. They mustn't be touched. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, like all the numbers in Revelation, this is supposed to be symbolic. Okay? 144,000 stands for God's people, his church. They are sealed. In other words, no one is able to pluck them out of Jesus' hand. John hears the number sealed in verse 4, and then in verse 9, he sees them. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can number. He sees them, not as the world sees them again, a despised and persecuted minority, but as heaven sees them, a vast army of the redeemed. No one can count them. He, just, he throws that little phrase in just in case someone actually thought the 144,000 were to be taken literally. Okay? And they're standing vindicated, wearing white robes, symbols that they're forgiven, made right with God. 
They're holding palm branches and crying out, salvation belongs to our God. And they're from every tribe and people and language, a multinational community. They've gone through the great tribulation, we're told, verse 14. Through the wars, they've seen that the four riders ride out. Through the famines, through the economic depressions, the persecutions, the martyrdoms, even through the great day of God's wrath, when the world falls apart around their ears, and now they're here standing before God. Imagine you were one of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, reading this. It's got to encourage you, isn't it? Doesn't it encourage you as you read these verses? Hello? Are we encouraged? All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Verse 15, we're told, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of their throne will be their shepherd. <laughs> Don't you love the way in which the mixed metaphors you get? The Lamb becomes the shepherd, yes? The one who gave his life will now be the one who leads them to springs of living water. In other words, they'll be satisfied forever. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Whenever I read that, the soppy individual that I am, I always want to cry. When God, God will wipe every tear from their Why is that I want to cry when I read that line? <laughs> God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Finally, we will be there. What a day that will be. Yes? Hello? Yes. Good. It's, good. it's encouraging because I'm worried that you're going to fall asleep. So you could read chapter 6, couldn't you, and think, my gosh, this is going to be tough. Yes? And then chapter 7. Wow. You read chapter 6, you get pessimistic. You think, oh dear, it's going to get worse. And just when you think it's going to get worse, it's going to get even more worse. <laughs> and then you read chapter 7, you think, wow, this is what the world is coming to. This is optimistic. And actually, you need both, don't you? That's in God's wisdom. He's put the two together. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 go together. If you just look at chapter 6, you give up. If you just lived in chapter 7, you would never face the ordeals of chapter 6. Actually, God brings the both together. We need both. We need to live in both because both are true. Chapter 8 and verses 1 to 5, we're introduced to the seventh seal. So we've had six of the seven seals on this scroll, broken open. Finally, we get to chapter 8, verse 1, and the seventh seal. And what are we told? When he opened the seventh seal, chapter 8, verse, eight, verse 1, there was silence in heaven. But John's taken us to the very brink of the world's end. And now he leaves us there in suspense. But then after the silence, look at verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven... What? Seven trumpets? <laughs> What's all this? 
We've just had seven seals. You would expect, wouldn't you, the last trumpet. But not seven of them. (laughs) And sure enough, we go around the cycle again till we reach the sixth trumpet. And when we're all on tiptoe anticipating the last seventh trumpet to blast, blow me if John doesn't introduce another interlude. And then he shows us seven bowls. What's going on? The point is, as we said in the first talk, Revelation is structured around three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. Now, some people think John is describing three phases of history, and that as we go through the world's history, we'll hit these series of sevens one by one, and we have to work out exactly where we are in that chronology. You know, where are we? In which Are we in the sort of fifth seal of the second cycle? Where exactly are we? Are we in chapter 9 or are we in chapter 10 or are we in chapter 11? They say, don't they, there's a a phrase that goes, history repeats itself. And I think that's exactly what John is showing us. That the events that will take place in the very last times, just before Jesus returns, will actually have happened many times before through history. John is showing us, if you like, the same downward spiral that will happen in every generation. The conditions in which Jesus will one day return. So we're shown seven seals and now we're shown seven trumpets and it's a cycle, it's a pattern that keeps repeating itself until finally we will reach the last cycle. So John keeps showing us the same sorts of things but from slightly different angles. And it's almost the same as we get in Genesis 1 to 11. Do you remember how Adam and Eve rebel against God in Genesis chapter 3? And you think, because we're told, aren't we? Genesis chapter 3, you might want to quickly turn back to Genesis chapter 3 if you've got a finger in Revelation. We're in the last book of the Bible, we might as well go to the first. Genesis chapter 3, they rebel against God, and God says... He curses the serpent, first of all. He curses the woman. Curses Adam. But in his curse of the serpent, he says, verse 15, chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, there will come one who will be a son of Eve, a son of Adam, who will eventually crush the serpent's head. But in so doing, he will be dealt a mortal blow. In dealing death to the serpent, he will be struck. And Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden. And then chapter 4 begins. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. And you remember, you've got the, the, the curse of chapter 3, verse 15, hanging in your memory, thinking, well, hang on, here, here are Adam and Eve. They've just produced two sons. And Eve has been told that there will come one day a son 
who will crush the serpent's, serpent's head and will deal with the serpent decisively. Maybe this, maybe Cain or Abel. You know, may, maybe our hope is here. And then you discover, actually, as you work through chapter 4, just actually, you know, <laughs> things were bad in chapter 3. They get even worse in chapter 4, don't they? Where we have fratricide. You know, one brother kills another. And then we get to chapter 5 and chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them and the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose the Lord said my spirit will not contend with man forever for he is mortal his days will be 120 years and we're told verse 5 the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time the Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain And it's a low point, isn't it? (laughs) We thought things were bad in chapter 3. By chapter 6, they're even worse. So that God is even thinking, well, I'm going to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. He doesn't. He washes the world clean, doesn't he? With the flood. Maybe this is it. A new start. Well, after the flood, Noah disgraces himself. And then we get the Tower of Babel. So Genesis 1 to 11, things start off well in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, things go go horribly wrong. And all the time you're thinking, well, maybe the next generation will put it right. Maybe it will get better. Actually, what happens is there's a cycle. There's a pattern which keeps repeating itself. Keeps repeating itself. And it's replayed again and again and again. And you've got something like that in Revelation. Revelation is showing us that actually that's what's happening in history. So, in Revelation chapter 8 verses 1 to chapter 9 verse 21, we have the seven trumpets being sounded. We've moved from the seven seals and now there are seven trumpets. And these are warnings for the nations. Trumpets 1 to 4, if you read them through, they announce Um, judgments on the world that are reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt and just like Pharaoh who wouldn't repent the world doesn't turn from its sin and it stubbornly insists on turning away from God and doing what is evil of course the whole point of judgment now when God sends judgment on the world now the whole point of it is it's giving us a little foretaste of judgment to come Actually, it's God's mercy. You know, when God sends us difficulties and troubles, this is God's mercy. Remember C.S. Lewis who said that suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's what these trumpets are. God is calling out to the world, not because at at the end of the day he wants to judge. He wants to save. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's his heart. So why does he send judgment? In order to call people back to him to repent. But in Trumpets 5 and 6, we discover actually that God's, as God sends these judgments, there is a rebellion and a resistance to him. So chapter 9 verse 20. Have a look at that. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues 
still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Here is humankind stubbornly refusing to repent. And then in uh, chapter 10 verse 1 to chapter 11 verse 14, John takes a break from the seven trumpets. Much as he took a break in chapter 8 from the seven seals. And just as he showed us the church back then in chapter 7, you remember the glorious chapter, now he shows us the church again. And he focuses on his witness first of all, his own witness, John's witness, where he's told to take a little scroll and to eat it. In other words, the message from God has got to become part of him. You know, he's not just a messenger. He's supposed to feel the message and live it out. There's John's own witness. And then secondly, in chapter 11, we're shown two more witnesses who are like Elijah and Moses. But they seem to represent the faithful people of God. They're empowered by God to witness to Jesus. And they become great witnesses to him, but they're killed. And the world gloats over them, thinking that they've won. God calls these two up to heaven, and he vindicates them, and those who've done terrible things to them are then judged. In chapter 11, verse 15 to verse 18, finally we get the sounding of the last seventh trumpet. The kings of the nations... The king of the nations, rather, is coming. The door of God's heavenly temple where he dwells is open wide. We crane our necks to see him. Lights flash, thunders roar, the earthquakes, the sky begins to fall. But again, we have to wait. The end hasn't come. Once again, we're now taken behind the scenes to understand the story behind history. So we get an interlude in chapters 12 to 15 verse 4. And so John is shown now something that's going on behind this world. And we discover in chapter 12 verses 1 to 18 that there's a war on. There's a war on. A spiritual battle. There is a Satan, there is a dragon, there is an ancient serpent. We come across him, remember, in Genesis chapter 3. And his intent is to destroy the people of God and the Messiah who will come from the people of God. That's the picture of the woman about to give birth, the people of God giving birth to the Messiah. The Messiah will come from God's people. But the the Satan, the dragon, will be defeated by the Lamb. We've already seen that back in chapter 5, haven't we? And his people will overcome as they trust in the blood of the Lamb, of the Lamb who was killed. So once again in chapter 12, and I'm not going to spend much time on this because you're going to be looking at this in your small groups. Once again in chapter 12, the song explains what's going on. But the devil, although he's dealt a mortal blow, will be enraged and he will see he will set too on God's people. He will decide to wage war against the people of God. He's enraged and he will try and do his worst. 
And so in chapter 13 and verses 1 to 18, we're introduced to the bogus trinity. Not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the demonic equivalent. The dragon, we've met him in chapter 12, and the two beasts. So chapter 13, we're told the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, verse 1, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. So there's a beast from the sea. And then have a look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. Two beasts. We know the dragon stands for Satan. But what about these two beasts? Well, the prophet Daniel, way back in the Old Testament, had a vision, not of two beasts, but of four, that came up out of the sea. And they represented successive empires. And what John seems to do here is to put all those beasts together and to make them one big monster. In effect, he's saying, here is the sum of all godless governments the world has ever known. Now notice in chapter 13, verse 10. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. John throws that in because that's, if you like, the, it's the theme which runs all the way through his symphony in Revelation. Do you remember chapter 1 and how John described himself? Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, he says, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I'm with you. I'm suffering too. I'm patiently enduring, waiting for this kingdom to come. And here we are in chapter 13. And he returns to that note. What will call for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints? Well, verse 10. Suffering. Going into captivity. Being killed by the sword. The persecution. As this bogus trinity seek to bring God's people down. That calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. You're listening, church? You're going to patiently endure? You're going to be faithful to Jesus? In verse 11 of chapter 13, we're introduced to the second beast, the beast from the earth. Now, later in chapter 19 and verse 20, he's called the false prophet, which is a clue to his identity. If the first beast from the sea represents totalitarian government, this beast from the earth represents the state religion that persuades or tries to make people worship the government. So the first beast represents godless government. The second beast is, if you like, his Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> Sorry. His general moderator. Or his pope, or whatever. Do you see? He's the religious arm. And in verse 18, we're in... What, how are we doing for time? What time do I need to finish? You're going to tell me I should have finished 10 minutes ago. Keep on going, I'll tell you this. 12.15. Ah, so I should have finished five minutes ago. Let, let me have three more minutes and I'll be done. In verse 18, we're introduced to his number. Do you see that? It's 333. Three, three. Oh, sorry, no, it's, what is it? 999. No, what is it? 666. Six, six. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yes, it's an easy number to forget, isn't it? Uh, I'm joking. <laughs> This is the number that people are forced to wear. Now, 
all sorts of suggestions, as you can imagine, exist as to what 666 means. And I won't bore you with telling you all the different options that there are, but let me tell you the one that I think is the most convincing. At the, at, at the end of the day, we're all guessing, but this is the one that I think is the most convincing. The number for perfection, if the number uh, for completeness in Revelation is 7, and if you think of the Trinity, the real Trinity, not the bogus one, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you attribute to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit each a, a number of completeness, you get the number what? 777. Now, in this chapter, chapter 13, we're introduced to this bogus trinity, you see. The beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, and the dragon, the serpent. The point about the beast and the dragon is that they appear as the lamb. This beast, do you notice? Verse 11, we're told, chapter 13, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. Do you see that? He's trying to imitate the lamb who was slain. But he speaks like a dragon. So he's demonic. But he's trying to pretend to be something. He's trying to appear, as Satan tries to, as an angel of light. Do you see? He's trying to ape God. But the point about the beast is he puts himself in the place of God and he is only ever at best six. In fact, he persistently misses the mark. He is six, six, six. However hard he tries, he will never be seven. Well, that's my, that's my, my best guess of what six, six, six means. You can... You can um, over lunch, you can bore each other with all your theories as to what 666 stands for. You decide as to whether you think that's convincing or not. Let's come on to chapter 14 and 15. 14 to chapter 15, verse 4, in the last couple of minutes. Because here in chapter 14, verse 1, to chapter 15, verse 4, remember we're still in this interlude. We've been taken to, to show things from the perspective of heaven we see the great divide. On the one hand in chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15, we see the security of God's people. They are secure. They're singing the song of salvation, which has always been our song. Notice in chapter 15, verse 3, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So those two songs now become one, the song of redemption. And God's people are there singing. It's a glorious vision. And we get that as well in chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Here are God's people glorified. The 144,000 who've been redeemed from the earth. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They've been purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God or the Lamb. No liars found in their mouths. They're blameless. So either side, if you like, the, the two slices of bread, we're seeing God's people wonderfully secure and safe. Sandwiched in between, in chapter 14, verse 6, through to the end of the chapter, verse 20, we get three proclamations, three woes, and a picture of judgment. So here are those who have not trusted God being judged. And do you notice again, chapter, verse, chapter 14 and verse 12, 
This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. As the world is judged, John is saying to to God's faithful people, now you remain faithful. You patiently endure. The suffering will come to an end. Those who are doing evil to you will no longer rule and reign. Patiently endure. Hold on. As we reach chapter 15, verse 5, which is where we came in on this section. Do you remember chapter 11, verse, six, verse 19? Then let's just flick back to chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. That is the is, if you like, the, um, the exclamation mark that's saying, hold on, we're going to take a little interlude and have a little look behind the scene of world history to see the unholy trinity at work. Because this, behind all that we see that's evil in the world, there is a spiritual battle going on. Okay? Chapter 15, verse 5 we see the same exclamation mark. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. So you've got these two bookends to this section which shows you the spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes. So this important interlude shows us that behind the scenes of human history, behind the tyranny of governments and the oppression of religion, and behind the church's suffering, there is a spiritual war going on. It's a fight between the bogus trinity and the real trinity. There are casualties in that war. People get hurt. But ultimately nothing can harm the true people of God because they're sealed. Heaven sees them as victorious, even if on this earth they're suffering and beleaguered and look insignificant and defeated. The question is, in this sequence of sevens and the cycles that we're in, will the cycles go on forever? And the answer is no. And chapter 15 verse 1 tells us the cycles will come to an end. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And in chapters 15 verse 5, right to the end, we'll see what the world is coming to.